Doctor, thank you for calling in. Thank you. So I read a bunch of books on North Korea, and your book was fair, detailed, important, and so informative. How difficult is it not only covering North Korea while you were with the CIA as an analyst, but now writing about such a secretive country? How difficult is that? Uh, you know, Mike, um, you know, writing about North Korea and thinking about North Korea is is one of the most humbling jobs, I think, that anybody could have because because so little is known and so few accurate, credible information is out there. Um, and, and, and I think that's true whether you're inside the government or outside the uh, outside the agency. So um, but in looking at Kim Jong-un and in writing this book, I really drew from not just my CIA and Intel analysis um, experience, but also from my background in history and culture and art. So, um, so I put a lot of my, uh, the, the entirety of my education and my knowledge um, into this book. Um, but, you know, North Korea is called the hardest of the hard targets for a lot of good reasons. And it's because the regime is just so secretive um, and it's paranoid. Uh, and the regime and the Kim dynasty itself wants to be really have these multiple layers of, of protection to ensure that that they control all of the information. Now, before we touch on the book, which is beyond incredible, I gave it five stars on Goodreads. Tell me, how long were you with the CIA and what made you want to join that job? Because you mentioned art and history and your other background, because I'm always curious why people choose their professions. Yeah, thanks. Um, I was at the CIA for, for nine years. Um, and that, you know, I was a history professor in New York City for a while, and I thought I wanted to do academia. Um, but when I was going through the archives and, you know, teaching and doing the research on, on the history, like why we why things are now the way they are um, and looking, digging through the background and digging through the history to find the answers of today. Um, I realized that what I really wanted to do and what, what I was really fascinated by is how how I can influence the present and the future. Um, and I saw that in terms of in, in, in working in national security that I can do that. I can use my writing and thinking skills and I can write for the president. I can write for you know, our big policymakers. I can write for our military commanders. Um, and that what I have to say uh, can, has the potential to influence the direction of history pretty much and the future. Nine years with the agency, and you didn't have enough of North Korea. What made you decide? Yeah. <laughs> what made you decide to write the book? Uh, um, yeah, so you know, when I came out of the agency, I saw, you know, I was really amazed by how much how much public interest there was, um, and how how there are a lot of people writing about North Korea, and there was some really good um, reporting and journalism, um, and little and snapshots of of North Korea and about about Kim Jong Un. But I, I saw that there wasn't a broad uh, sweep of, of why, you know, why North Korea is the way it is, um, how Kim Jong-un rose to power, um, why, why North Korea is such a big problem for the United States. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to, you know, given my background and given my experience at the CIA, I really wanted to put all of that into a really easily readable um, history plus national security plus biography of this dictator. I love having authors on, but I love having people who aren't authors who become authors, athletes who write a book, CIA agent, agents who write a book, military people. Did you enjoy the process of writing the book? Um, yeah, I, I did. You know, writing is so solitary and so humbling because, you know, you're by yourself most of the time. And usually, 
and for me, I was up really late. Um, I have two little kids and, you know, I had a day job. So I would have do my regular think tank job, come home, uh, feed the kids, put them down. And then I would, um, and then I would write from like 9 PM to 2 AM every night. Um, and so, you know, it's dark, it's lonely, it's, it's humbling and it's, you know, I'm alone with my thoughts. Um, but you know, I, I love writing. Um, and, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, I was so used to writing quickly at the CIA and that's one of the biggest, you know, biggest, my biggest takeaway and my biggest skill, I think from the CIA is the ability to write quickly. Cause when you hear that the president needs, you know, analysis on X, you know, in, uh, by, by the next morning that you just got to sit down and just, you know, pump it out and then it's out the door. So, um, but I love writing this book because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not like CIA writing for sure. Um, it's, um, it, because it's much more descriptive. CIA writing is very, um, it's very, mm, it, it's very strict of, of <laughs> any descriptive, um, descriptive adjectives, right? Because, you know, the, the, our policymakers have so little time to read. Uh, but I, I like writing this book because I could add in the descriptors, you know, what the environment was like, what the atmosphere was like, what the weather was like, or how somebody looked and, you know, what, what were, you know, how a certain uh, piece of monument um, looks like and what, what it was meant for. So I think, uh, so in that way, I enjoyed it a lot. I love the book again. Like you mentioned, it was facts. It was no opinion. And I read a book, a lot of books on North Korea, and it's sometimes storytelling or opinions. You're stuck to the facts and detailed facts. And many interviews you've done, because I watched a bunch of them, and I tried to make this different, focus obviously on Kim Jong-un. But the part mm-hmm. of the book where I loved the most was The Unknown, which is about his wife. What, was it Ri Sol? How do you say her name? Resold you. Uh-huh. I loved it. You went so you found such details that no one knows about her. She's this beautiful woman. Does she play a pivotal role in everyday life there? Um, I think she, you know, given all of the things that uh, the the strict controls that the regime has, and you know, they con- everything means something um, in, in what the regime decides to put out there. Um, and so, for me, when when I see the regime putting such a prominent, you know, putting her in such a prominent role and in, in, in the part of the public life. Um, I see her as playing, as being, being a lot of things um, for the regime. Um, on the one hand, she is, um, I think from my, from my perspective, and when I analyze why uh, Kim Jong-un has put his wife out there, I think he's trying to show the world internally and externally that, um, that this is the mother of the next successor. So don't bother, you know, hedging and uh, aligning yourself with other branches of the family. Um, two, she puts a softer edge on, on you know, uh, Kim's image as this dictator. Um, but she, her presence makes him a husband, um, a father, uh, somebody who can play around with children. Um, and so that puts a softer touch on this, uh, on a guy who is, uh, is has been designated by the United States as a human rights violator. Um, and three, I think she, you know, she's supposed to be, uh, from 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 my view, she's supposed to be the uh, to be channeling the do- the domestic consumerist energies of the North Korean people. You know, she's wearing these bright, colorful clothing, the fashion, the shoes, the hairstyle, the makeup. You know, I think she's a way for, you know, to channel all of those energies domestically of the women of North Korea into a domestic um, sort of Jackie O, uh, you know, from from, you know, John F. Kennedy Camelot days. 
or the Kate Middleton, you know, this fresh young um, perspective um, that 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 uh, really talks about this brighter future for North Korea. Looking at the cover of this book, whose idea was it? Because I don't think I've ever had an author on and spoke about the cover because it's like a perfect eye-catching cover. It's different and u- unique. Was that yours from your art history or wait, where the end? Yeah. yeah. Um, th- uh, Mike, um, I'm so glad you like the cover because I think the cover is really just is so spot on. Um, and when you look at a lot of the books about or, you know, even magazine articles um, about Kim Jong-un, um, they're they're flat. They're two dimensional. They're um, you know, I remember an economist cover um, where Kim Jong Il, the, the father uh, who died in 2011, you know, he's a literal rocket, you know, blasting off into space or the New Yorker cover of Kim Jong Un, who, you know, as a toddler uh, in a onesie playing with his nuclear mis- <laughs> nuclear <laughs> nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, but he's not flat. He's not a cartoon. You know, he's not a baby. Um, and and so um, what this cover tells me and shows the, you know, I, I want the readers to judge the book by this cover. Um, it's it's as if, you know, he's a whole person. It's from a real photograph. It's a whole person. He's walking somewhere. His face is off to the side. You don't know where he's looking. He's stepping into he's stepping out of other shadows and into his own. Um, and and so, you know, it, it says so much about uh, it says exactly what I wanted to say is that in order to know where he's going, we have to know where he's coming from. But also that we have to see him not as a cartoon or not as this crazy guy, um, but that he's this whole person with hopes and fears and aspirations. And that unless we understand all of those um, that we're not going to have the right policy approach for dealing with North Korea. And that actually leads me to the next bullet point I want to bring up, because I don't know if this is the right word, but you humanized him because he is a character. Whenever time, if you're not a history major or you go on Twitter and something, he's a character. They make him a joke and stuff, but he's mocked. He's He does lead a country that's potentially very dangerous. Going into writing this book, was that your idea to humanize him and show really like, hey, he's not just a character. This guy's the real deal. Yeah, um, you know when you see when you see a uh, somebody as a as a cartoon character, you don't take him seriously, and I think um, that 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 really um, affects how we um, the how we think about North Korea and the threats that it poses. When somebody when the leader of a nuclear armed country is seen as a cartoon, um, you either uh, there's a tendency to overestimate, you know, he's crazy, he's going to do all these crazy things um, or to underestimate that, of course, he's not going to do it because he's such a child and he's inexperienced and he won't do all of these things. Um, And so that's really I think it's very uh, a dangerous thing to do. Um, and, you know, and the question will will come up all the time about his rationality, um, about what he actually wants. Um, and so I wanted to provide that fuller picture um, that it's not always about us, the United States, um, but that he has uh, that he fears his people as much as he fears the United States. Um, and, and that's all encapsulated um, in the book. And what does he want? Because on the outside looking in. He extends the olive branch to President Trump. Trump goes there. He uh, extends the branch of South Korea. They have the meeting at the DMZ at the summits. He allows the North and South to march together in the Olympics. What's his game? Like, what's his reasoning for these te- uh, teases, Doctor? Yeah. Um, so I think um, when uh, so when when I was at the CIA and watching Kim, 
um, for that whole period. Um, what we saw was that he was not interested in diplomacy at all because he was very much focused domestically as well as showing uh, advancing the nuclear weapons program. So we saw ballistic missile tests every two weeks to the point where we talked inside the agency, we talked about this new normal that we were so we were so constantly under stress about about these the unpredictability of the sky, the fact that he was not engaging at all and that he was so he was so accelerating uh, the weapons program. Um, that uh, and he was purging hundreds of of his own officials that, you know, this was the new normal of tension, of unpredictability, of this very bold and aggressive guy. Um, but what uh, was so when he pivoted in 2018, that was a huge change. Um, and as it turned out, you know, at the time, um, I think it was worth it was worth uh, the effort for President Trump to um, to engage since Kim has said that this you know, nuclear weapons are his nuclear weapons. So, you know, let's engage at the top. But in the in those three years, despite that very high level engagement, we haven't really seen um, very much um, uh, progress on denuclearization. Um, and, and, you know, I think as we look back on the past three years, uh, Kim was was marching in the parade. He was. Uh, engaging all of this uh, in the summit diplomacy. And that was a way of trying to reduce the tension, but also try to um, uh, to recreate his image as an international statesman, that he's going to be a responsible nuclear weapons power. He is um, at an equal uh, level with Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, China, uh, U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, um, as well as other regional, uh, regional uh, leaders. So um, you know, he he has wanted to do that. He he has rebranded himself as this, you know, uh, you know, as this uh, this uh, seasoned, established, um, responsible power. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we you know, North Korea has is a violator of human rights. Um, it's been designated so by the UN, by the United States. Um, there are hundred, over 100,000 people in these prison camps. Uh, North Korea is at the lowest of the low in terms of GDPs. Um, the, you know, 40% of its people are malnourished. Um, and so, you know, uh, no matter what Kim might do, there's, uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, you know, he's still a dictator and he has a high tolerance for, for his people's pain um, at the expense, you know, uh, you know, at the expense. So they're, you know, the, the people are suffering at the expense of, um, his nuclear weapons program and, and buying off the elite. And they control every single thing that the people of North Korea see. How do they spin or what message do they send when, you know, America's the enemy, South Korea's this, and when they have the summits, how do they spin it that way to make it positive on for North Korea? Yeah, uh, you know, um, in the book, I explain how um, uh, when Kim, Kim Jong-un came to power, he refurbished all of these war monuments and war museums. Um, uh, his, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, started the Korean War in 1950. The grandfather was also this guerrilla fighter against the Japanese um, colonialists. Um, and, and so to revive that revo revolutionary spirit and to um, double down on, on how terrible the Americans are, Kim expanded all of these war museums where, you know, they're really graphic where, you know, um, Americans are bayoneting a woman's breast, right? Um, or ripping children out of the, the arms of their parents. Um, really graphic, terrible, gruesome stuff. 
Um, and in their textbooks too, um, students learn, North Korean students learn conjugation by, you know, reciting things like, we kill Americans, we killed Americans, we are killing Americans. Um, and, and, and their math problems are based on how many American soldiers that they've killed uh, on, a, on a given day. Um, so I think it's just, um, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in, um, in not just the rhetoric, but in the education system um, and in the, uh, in the culture. Um, and that's a way to um, ensure that the North Korean people have a sense of this hostile outside world and the only person who can protect them from the evil Americans um, is Kim Jong-un or, or whoever comes after him. Um, and so this is a way, uh, you know, this kind of rhetoric, anti-American rhetoric is a way of legitimizing this, uh, this dictatorship. I know I only have it for another couple of minutes. You ready for a few quick hit questions to finish up? Yeah. I found so many parts of this book captivating, and the one that stood out the most for me was the sophistication with the um, with the hacking when the movie The Interview came out. Did anything really stand out to you writing this book that really shocked you? Um, you know, the thing about North Korea is that you have to be prepared for shock, um, and in that way, you <laughs> gird yourself. You gird yourself for the unexpected. Um, that's why, you know, I, you know, coming out of the agency, it's you know, you can't underestimate anybody, right? Um, that you have to be prepared. Um, and so, you know, uh, one of the things that um, of the agency is that, you know, we're not, we're not there to be fortune tellers, but that we're, we're there to make sure that the president um, and, the, and our policymakers are not surprised. Um, but I, so, so all of these things were on the horizon. Um, but I think on the, on the sophistication of North Korea's hacking abilities and their cyber capabilities, um, you know, that's akin to how much effort that they, how much, um, how many advances that they've made in, in the nuclear weapons program. And this is, you know, it, back in the day, no one thought that this impoverished country could have an ICBM that could potentially hit the United States in the similar way that no one thought that North Korea with this very closed off environment uh, it, it closed off um, technolo technological environment that they would be able to have the sophistication to um, really um, terrorize um, a, a major U.S. private entity like Sony Pictures Entertainment. But that's what they did. And that's what the North Koreans have done um, in their hacking uh, abilities, not just in the United States, but out, uh, but out with the, in the U uh, United Kingdom, um, in uh, with banks in Mexico, banks in Vietnam, uh, Bangladesh. I mean, they're they're all over the place. So so it's amazing what what a little country can do if the leadership has the political will and the resources to pour into their objectives. Me, as an obsessive traveler, I'm trying to go to every country in the world. I'm at 77. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that if the ban gets lifted, I want to visit North Korea as a tourist? Is that a bad thing? Um, you're asking the wrong person, Mike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I would not go to North Korea because um, I think, you know, it's I think uh, North Korea is really is a really interesting place. Right. Um, but, you know, when I think about um when people ask me if they should go to North Korea, I think about Otto Warmbier. Um, and that's the uh, University of Virginia student, American student, um, who went to North Korea on this tour, knowing full well, you know, all of, of all of the restrictions that the that the regime places on the tourists. Um, and he came back in a coma and, and sadly he died. Um, and and so there's a huge risk to all of this, to to going to North Korea. Um, 
but you know, I do understand why you would want to go to see all of this for yourself to see if this is actually real. Um, one of the things about uh, tourism into North Korea as well is that it it is a critical source of revenue for the regime. Um, and uh, tourism is not banned. Um, it's not sanctioned. Um, but I think uh, visitors would have to be aware that um, that whatever money that they spend in the country um, go into the regime's coffers and it and, and, and that in a way uh, reinforces the regime. Because of the lockdown, I'm not sure if this applies to you and that would suck, but I love asking authors the first time you saw someone read your book or something with your book, have you had that opportunity yet to be on a plane or a train or in a coffee shop and saw someone reading this book or not yet? Oh, Mike, that's so sad. It's a sad question because, you know, um, but everything I see is through digital media and the social media is really great. Um, and what's so what's, you know, the the sun, the sunshine in all of this uh, with the coronavirus lockdowns um, is that um, is that because everything is online that I, you know, I feel like this is um, I've been able to reach a lot more people and, and engage with a lot more people, even though I can't actually see them. Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been one bright spot that, that you know, that I've been able to uh, reach more people through social media and through these webinars that I've been doing. So, uh, but um, I, guess, I guess it's that um, at what, what I find really uh, gratifying is somebody like you, Mike, um, that I don't run into on a normal basis, right? Um, the, uh, and not in the, in outside of the DC think tank um, circles, um, who would be interested in me and this book to be, you know, to want to interview me. So thank you for for inviting me to join you on your on your broadcast. Of course, three more. You lived in New York City. I lived here my whole life. Best pizza in New York City is where? Oh my gosh, um, best pizza, Lombardi's. Oh, on Spring Street, of course. That is actually the yeah. best. Pl- that is actually the best place. Where'd you I live? Mean, in, where'd so you live you in the know. city when you were here? So I was on uh, Prince and Spring. Oh, so you were right there next to Lombardi's. Yeah, so I was right there. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yes. And nothing comes close. You know, DC is kind of a you know, it's not a, it's not known for its pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two more. Best movie about the CIA. Best movie about the CIA. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Doc. I love when people ask me, "Tell me the best cop show." I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't watch any of them. I wouldn't know if they were good or not. <laughs> no, um, but I have to say that I, I would say that the best, um, the, the most enjoyable TV show about the CIA, I think, was the one where Katherine Heigl was playing a, a PDB briefer, and it was completely wrong, um, but it was so enjoyable because it was so wrong. And how about the last one for me on a personal level? What's the biggest misconception that the public have, that civilians have about the CIA? Uh, that, um, let's see, that, you know, there's some really cool stuff that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what the U.S. government can do and what, what the U.S. government can do with our allies and our partners. Um, but, you know, but, but, but what's also true is that a lot of us, uh, a lot of people are just sitting at their desk and writing papers. <laughs> like a lot of office people. <laughs> because, 
you know, and that's true of, you know, that's true of, of, of anywhere, right? But I think, I think the biggest misconception is that, that of the CIA is that, you know, there's nobody at their desk, but that everybody's out spying on people and, you know, under bridges and, <laughs> you know, being on private jets all but that's not the case a lot of you know but a lot of those people are still sitting at their desk and filling out paperwork and doing and writing papers <laughs> please give the plug to where people can buy your book and how they can follow you on social media yeah um i'm at uh, j-u-n-g-h-p-a-k-1 on twitter um and um Every, you know, you can all buy, I would encourage, you know, going to your local bookshops. I'd like bookshop.org um, that helps you immediately find uh, bookshops close to you. And of course, it's on Amazon and um, Target, Walmart. Um, and so I thank you to all of your listeners. And thanks to you, Mike, for, for having me on. Of course, and I really mean this, and this wasn't me just saying I love the book. I gave it five stars. I read a ton of books on North Korea, and this one was so fair and so informative, and it gave the history. It didn't just give a little story or opinion. It stuck to the facts, and thank you for your service. Thank you for coming on, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks.